In the words of the great Alfred Hitchcock, good evening. My name is Mark Riley, and this is The Mark Riley Show. We're here from 6 until 7 p.m. each and every Wednesday. That's 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, because, you know, we're on the Internet. And that means people all over the world can hear what we're doing. Let me start out by thanking Gary No, by thanking Jason, thanking Casey, and all the people that made it possible for me to be here. For those of you who've got no clue who I am, I'll take about 30 seconds and introduce myself. I started in radio in 1973. I think some of you all may not have been born in 1973. Doesn't mean I'm old, or maybe it does, but I try to be young at heart. I have worked in all manner of radio, local, national, always had a preference for local. My wife yells at me for admitting that. But this progressive radio network is something and a place I feel completely at home because I've always considered myself to be a progressive. And the operative word in progressive or the operative part of progressive for me is progress. I find it interesting that people... I heard a a commercial before I came on that said, move forward. Now, there's a television network that talks about leaning forward. There's a difference between leaning and moving. And I hope you all know what it is, because I'm not planning on leaning anything. I'm planning on moving forward. Let me tell you very quickly how this show works. Do a little five-minute intro, uh, and there's some people that we lost over the past week, and I'm going to mention them. And then we do the top ten stories of the week, as compiled by, guess who? With a small bit of analysis. After that, we take a look at one big story. Tonight, that big story is going to be the World Cup. Not because we're not, I don't do sports. I love football, but I don't do sports. I'm going to talk about the protests around the World Cup why they happen, how they happen. We're going to be talking with Professor Philip Oxhorn. He's a professor of political science at McGill University. And he is an expert on the protests and maybe just a little bit about why we don't hear anything about the protests now that the World Cup is in full swing. We also have some time set aside for listener phone calls. So get your dialing fingers ready. Our number is 888-874-4888. Not now, because we're not doing it now. But we're going to have a chance to do that. And at the end of the show, we're going to have a little segment called To the Ridiculous. As in, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Cover a story, or in this case, a family, who makes news seemingly every day. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why. So that's a little bit about what we're doing. But let me say first that five people, five important, in many cases, iconic people passed away during this past week. Ruby D, little Jimmy Scott, Casey Kasem. Tony Gwynn, and Chuck Noll. Chuck Noll, Tony Gwynn, obviously from the world of sports. Iconic figures in the world of sports. Chuck Noll presided over 
the Steel Curtain defense, the Pittsburgh Steelers, extraordinary team in the 1970s. Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn retired from baseball with a 338 batting average. 338, retired with a 338 batting average. Played 20 seasons. Do you know how consistent you have to be to hit 338 over 20 seasons? Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Casey Kasem, a voice that many of us listen to. Even though I wasn't much into the music he played all the time, but that countdown of his was extraordinary. And a lot of people don't know this. The Reverend Jesse Jackson married Casey and Gene Kasem. Just a little bit of trivia, because I'm an old man and I know about a few of these things. I had the privilege of interviewing little Jimmy Scott twice. What an extraordinary man. What an extraordinary voice. If you all have never heard him sing, I would recommend to you any one of his albums, starting with The Source in 1970. Just an extraordinary voice. His voice inspired numbers of female musicians. Because due to an illness that he had, his voice never changed. So when you hear him sing, he sounds like a woman. But he's not. He left us. I believe he was like 88 years old. Brilliant vocalist and a really, really nice person. And Ruby D. Back in the mid-1970s, I was working at a radio network. And she and her husband, Ossie Davis, did a show. I think it was called With Ossie and Ruby. So they come in every week and they'd be in our studios. And I had a chance periodically to sit and talk with both of them. And Ruby D was an extraordinarily, aside from being a gifted actress, she was a gracious human being. I mean, just an extraordinarily gracious human being. And I believe when, when you lose five people like this, some people tend to focus on their own mortality. When somebody passes, they tend to look at, well, what does that mean to me? I think, what does it mean to the world? So I mourn the passing of Ruby D, Little Jimmy Scott, Casey Kasem, Tony Gwynn, and Chuck Noll. Now, on to our top ten stories. Story number one. Eric Cantor loses, and Washington, D.C. faints, acts as if the world is coming to an end. When I heard that he lost, and by the way, he spent a million dollars in the weeks leading up to the primary election, his opponent, Dave Bratt, Bratt? Yeah, Dave Bratt, had $100,000 in his war chest, if you want to call it a war chest. Yet Eric Cantor lost and, and didn't lose by, you know, like 50 to 49 or 50 to whatever, 51 to 49. He lost big for a guy that was a majority leader of the United States House of Representatives, the number two guy. And I started hearing from people in the media, Democrats wringing their hands. Oh, my God, what does this mean? To me, it meant, you know, 
an ideological enemy won't be there anymore. Now, Dave Bratt was backed by the Tea Party. I don't agree with the Tea Party about what time of day it is. But I find it irksome to hear Democrats jumping up after Eric Cantor lost and saying, oh, we can't do immigration anymore. We can't do this anymore. We can't. Eric Cantor wasn't, I mean, he may have, you know, talked a good game about immigration reform or talked a good game about some other issues. But Eric Cantor wasn't really down with any of this. Eric Cantor has been a naysayer. He's a politician, for God's sake. And we'll talk more about that because I, I got plenty to say about plenty of politicians, including the president of the United States. You know, after Eric Cantor left, after uh, you know giving his concession speech, a bunch of immigration protesters actually came to the ballroom to push for reform. Cantor was gone. And that's kind of, sort of, what's happening to him in the House of Representatives. Cantor, after this legislative session, will be gone. I'm curious as to whether or not Dave Bratt's Democratic opponent can raise any sand. Story number two, Iraq. Man, I don't like this. I don't like this. See, I don't like war, right? I'm old enough to remember Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And the most important phrase in that song for me was, war is not the answer. It's not the answer for Shiites and Sunnis in Iraq, but it's certainly not the answer for the United States. If anything, we should have learned what happened in 2003. When we thought war was the at least George W. Bush thought war was the answer. And of course, after all this chaos began, and, and let me be clear as I can be about what appear to be the stakes here. This ISIS organization that is responsible for a lot of the violence and allegedly, you know, mowing down 1,700 Iraqi government soldiers, et cetera, et cetera, they have a plan. And their plan is not just about Iraq. And their plan is steeped in the history of the Middle East. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean I agree with their plan or what they stand for. But they got a plan. And to understand their plan, you have to understand that the way the Middle East is currently configured had nothing to do with the people who lived there. Europeans did that. French, British, whoever. They carved up the Middle East. And they carved it up for their own benefit. And the people that live there have never forgotten that. So here comes ISIS. And ISIS says, we don't just want Iraq. We want to create an Islamic state that includes Iraq and parts of Syria. And maybe uh, some other parts of the Middle East. While we're at it. And they have been successful up to a point in pursuing that end. So successful, in fact, that the Iraqi president, Nouri al-Maliki, our boy, uses back-channel communications and please help me. Help me. Because, you know, he had some soldiers that, like, deserted 
The minute they saw these ISIS people show up with guns and rifles. Just like, psh, gone. Now, let me be clear. Again, this is just my own opinion. Right, Jason? Just my own opinion. <laughs> I would not live in a state where women had to stay indoors or where murder equals governance. All right? Because it seems to me like there's an awful lot of situations in that region where people think it's okay to kill folks to accomplish a particular political end. And then they, you know, point fingers and call each other terrorists. And what do we worry about here in the state? Well, I mean, what is Iran going to do? What do you mean you're talking to Iran? And of course, you have the war hawks in the media. Ah, Barack Obama, he's retreated on this. It's his fault. If he had been tougher to begin with. Tougher like how? Like putting boots on the ground, keeping boots on the ground, keeping other people's kids on the ground to get shot up over there? Is that what Barack Obama should have done? And see, here's the other part of this. And you need to, folks need to step back a little bit. This is a partisan battle between two different parts of the same religion. The Shia and the Sunnis are, are both Muslims. And they can't get along. Now, you know, we, we went over there and made a heck of a mess. So at some point, I assume, maybe we have to bear just a little bit of responsibility for what's going on. But that responsibility, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't include airstrikes, doesn't include boots on the ground. I'm sorry. No. Not this time. And right now, despite Maliki's call for the United States to do some airstrikes, shouldn't do it. Shouldn't do it. Doesn't mean that we endorse ISIS. It's just we shouldn't do it. Because war is not the answer. And if we're going to stand for anything as a nation, anything, we have to stand up and say to other countries where killing people or kidnapping females in Nigeria or wherever, notice you don't hear a whole heck of a lot about Boko Haram lately, have you? We should be standing up and telling everybody, whether they'll listen or not, war is not the answer. And there are reasons why we won't do that. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a failure of Barack Obama's presidency, which I have generally been supportive of. But that's a failure. I'm sorry. There's no way else you can get around it. He has not led when it comes to the pursuit of peace. That doesn't mean that had he been more aggressive in pursuing peace, that this mess in Iraq wouldn't have happened. But certainly he would have had some moral authority to attempt at some point to forge some kind of consensus, to get something done, to get these people to stop killing each other. You know, when these folks go out and kill women and babies and children, when they go out and do that, what they do 
is create future generations of people who are going to hate their guts. And they're going to, the first chance they get, take up arms to get even. That's how this works. And we don't know this already. We're not in a position to lead. So Barack Obama, almost no matter what he does, is getting his butt kicked on foreign policy anyway. New NBC News, Wall Street Journal poll. And, and I'm, uh, let me say this at the outset. I'm not a big poll guy. Okay. I'm just not. You know, the polls are snapshots. They can change. They can go upside down, this and that. I did a TV show the other day. And it was about the president's approval ratings. And the guy I was talking to, this was on Newsmax. Now, Newsmax is a right-wing throwback television network. But I went on anyway. What the heck? I wasn't busy. And, well, President Obama has a 44% approval rating. Don't you think that's pretty bad? Hey, let's look at George W. Bush's approval rating during during an equivalent time period. His approval rating in June of 2006, which was, by the way, the second year after he was, he was reelected, his approval ratings during the month of June were 36, 38, and 37. An average seven points but below Barack Obama. But who cares? I'm not sure Barack Obama cares. I'm not sure Barack Obama cares what the tabloids in New York have to say about his coming to New York to raise money while Iraq is up in flames. Like he's supposed to go to D.C. and lead something. What? They never say, but lead something. I, I, I'm getting to the point in my old age that I'm starting to think that we should kind of sort of not ask our political people to lead anymore. They don't, most of them don't seem to have it in them, to be honest. Leadership. And it's not just on, on, on the federal level. Here in New York, you know, the state legislative session ends tomorrow, Thursday, up in Albany. And a lot of people up there are hoping and praying that no state senator or no assembly member or no staff member ends up getting busted and led out of a chamber in leg irons. That's how bad it is in Albany. They just declared a mistrial in the case of a state senator, Malcolm Smith, who was crazy enough to think he could buy his way to the Republican nomination for mayor, allegedly. It's like, what? What? And, you know, there are certain things that ought to be done in Albany. There's a medical marijuana bill, a medical marijuana bill. Notice I didn't say a recreational marijuana bill. I said a medical marijuana bill. And Andrew Cuomo, the governor, says, well, I'll only agree with it under certain circumstances. Like, they don't smoke it. Huh? (laughs) What? (laughs) Excuse me? Really? Seriously? So what? Everybody's going to make it in brownies? Which, by the way, is more difficult to actually, you know, kind of like regulate the THC content when you bake it as opposed to smoking it. But somebody, I don't know who it was, the health, the health guy, the state police, somebody got in Andrew's ear and said, listen, man, don't let us smoke it. Come on. Come on. You know. Andrew Cuomo says, 
on Long Island, quote, we don't have a robust agenda that we're working through. We did what we really needed to get done in the budget. Uh, I would like to see public finance pass. I would have liked to see the women's equality agenda passed. I would have liked to see a DREAM Act. Well, you're the governor, homeboy. If you really wanted to get it done, maybe you should use some of that famous ability to persuade. But no, it didn't get done. And I, I guarantee you, this medical marijuana thing's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Now, you got two states in this country that have legalized it for recreational use. But no weed for people who truly need it here. And, and trust me, when I say that, there are people in New York who would be helped physically by being able to smoke weed. I mean, I, there's no other way I could put it. They would be helped. But, you know, I, I can't sign a bill where it allows them to smoke it. That's why I, I kind of kind of have a, a, a strange feeling about politicians every now and then. Now, health care. Now, here are a couple of companion stories. So just so you all understand where we're at with health care in this country. It's a new report from the Commonwealth Fund. I didn't make this up. This is not the Mark Riley report. It's from the Commonwealth Fund. They ranked the United States health care system as the most expensive in the world and the worst performing out of, of the top 11 industrialized countries. The list, number one, the United Kingdom, number two, Switzerland, number three, Sweden, number four, Australia, number five, Thai, Germany and the Netherlands, number six, New Zealand and Norway. I'm sorry, number seven, New Zealand and Norway. They're also tied. Number nine, France, number 10, Canada and number 11. The good old U.S. of A. Why you? And by the way, America ranked last in efficiency, equity, and outcomes in 2010, in 2007, 2006, and 2004. Not a great record. Not a great record. Now, these numbers were taken before the Affordable Care Act was fully implemented. But for those of you who think all is sweetness and light with the Affordable Care Act, let me disabuse you of that notion. The Obama administration is contacting hundreds of thousands of people with subsidized health insurance to resolve questions about their eligibility. What does that mean? If they deem you ineligible for the subsidies you're getting, they're going to ask you for some money back, party people. That's right. Dig deep. Pull out the wallet. Of the 8 million people who signed, out, signed up for private health plans through insurance exchanges under the new law, Two million reported personal information that differed from data in government records. It's according to the feds. And they hired an outside firm, don't they always, to resolve these inconsistencies. Government asking consumers for additional documents to verify their income, citizenship, immigration status, and Social Security numbers, as well as any health coverage they may have from employers. People who do not provide the information risk losing their subsidized coverage and may have to repay subsidies next April. What that means, ladies and gentlemen, is that the Affordable Care Act giveth, and if you're not careful, the Affordable Care Act will taketh away. So uh, make sure 
The subsidy you're getting is a subsidy you're supposed to. You don't want any nasty surprises, okay? You just don't. And, and by the way, the government shouldn't be in the business of providing nasty surprises to people. Is that okay for me to say, Jason? <laughs> the government's not supposed to do that. Now, you know, the midterm elections aren't too far away, right? Every, everybody's focusing on whether the Republicans will maintain their majority in the House and whether they'll retake the Senate. What people are not focusing on nearly as closely, and they should be, are the various court rulings with regard to voter suppression in certain states across this country. That's right, voter suppression. Uh, there are, I think, 22 states that passed laws to uh, restrict people's right to vote. All you need to know about those laws and the states that pass them uh, is a little bit, just a little bit of information. Of the 11 states with the highest black turnout rate in 2008, seven have new restrictions in place. Of the dozen states with the largest growth in Hispanic population of 2000-2010, nine, that would be nine out of 12, three out of four, passed laws making it harder to vote. I didn't make this up. This comes from the Brennan Center based here in New York. I got a lot of respect for these folks. So that's where that's at. And various courts have struck down some of these laws in different states, but it's not clear. Arkansas, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin have had the courts say, no, you can't do this stuff. But, of course, all of the states try to appeal, and they try to appeal based on non-existent voter fraud. But, hey, you know, I quibble. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. I love it. I love this. I get to sit up here and talk about a few stories and talk a little trash. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the World Cup. And I said earlier, I am not a sportscaster. I love sports. I played soccer, football in high school. So I've loved the game since I was a kid. A long time ago. And I love the World Cup. I think it's wonderful. But, and I, I thought it was great that Brazil got it. But the people of Brazil aren't real happy about some of the stuff that's come along with the World Cup, including allegations of corruption, including cost overruns that would make a New York legislator blush, including questions about indigenous rights and about the rights of Afro-Brazilians. We'll talk about all of that. We have a very special guest, Professor Philip Oxhorn. He's a professor of political science at McGill University in Canada. We'll be talking with him at 28 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock, right after this brief musical interlude.
29 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. For those of you who are not familiar with the music in the background, a song called Plum Blossom by Dr. Youssef Latif, the late Dr. Youssef Latif, a man who fused, he, he did world music before anybody ever coined the phrase world music. And I love and respect his work over the long term. So what's going on at the World Cup? Some great matches, but is all the euphoria covering some very serious problems in Brazil? Some problems we just talked about? Joining us, professor of political science at McGill University, an honor to welcome Professor Philip Oxhorn. Good evening to you, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's great being here. Yeah, talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first of all, let me ask you, I mean, what was the genesis of the protests around the World Cup? What Was there a single issue or was there a multiplicity of them? Oh, it's a multiplicity. And, and, and really what happened is that last year, basically a year ago, there was what's called the Confederations Cup, which is another major football soccer event. And there were hundreds of thousands of people on the streets protesting everything from rises in transportation costs to corruption, poverty, etc., and so what we're seeing now is really what's left of that movement from a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it's still corruption, it's poverty, it's crime, it's inequality. And whether or not spending billions of dollars on stadiums was worth it. Now, I saw uh, an article about a protest that actually took place on the field uh, at one of the matches. And uh, apparently it was not televised. It had to do with uh, indigenous rights. Are you familiar with that? That, that particular protest, no, but, but it doesn't surprise me. What, what's happened is that a year ago the protest was massive. Everybody was involved, particularly lower people. This year what it, what it is, it's specific groups like indigenous people, homeless people. They're, they're much smaller, so, so protests are, you know, instead of hundreds or thousands, there are dozens of people, maybe hundreds for a, for a big one. And indigenous people are the most marginalized, the poorest, the, the most um, disadvantaged people in Brazil. There aren't very many of them, which is one of the reasons why they're so marginal and disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing doesn't surprise me, especially since a lot of the stadiums, or a number of them, were built in areas very close to the, to the rainforest, which is where they live. Now, uh, how bad from where you sit were the cost overruns on some of these stadiums? Because I remember hearing uh, about protests that said, look, we need infrastructure, we need yeah. rail infrastructure, we need schools built and these sorts of things. Yeah. And instead they're building stadiums. And, and some of these places apparently uh, cost a lot more than originally projected, no? Well, that, that, that's almost inevitable. Uh, the overruns were much greater in Russia for the Olympics. So there was some of that. But, you know, when you're, when you're talking about an economy like Brazil's, and it's, an, it's the seventh biggest economy in the world, so it's bigger than Russia's. Well, when you look at something like that, the, the, four billion, the billions that were overspent are more symbolic. And, and what they're symbolic of is the corruption. It's the reason why they, they, the overruns were, were there. The problem, though, is that the problems in Brazil are so structural, they're, they're so endemic, having the Olympics there or not probably wouldn't make much of a difference anyway because the billions that were spent on the stadiums wouldn't necessarily have been spent on better health care programs, better, better educational programs either. But now, uh, Professor, uh, the general perception 
is that Brazil is a relatively progressive country. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Lula, who, who was there for a good period of time, he was widely revered, yeah. left office with the highest approval rating of any developed country or, or, yeah. or you know, on the planet. Uh, what happened? How does a progressive well, com- uh, country become the focus of all this? Well, the, what, the, this is the, the, the tragedy of a lot of Latin America. He, he deserved that. It is a progressive government, and not only is it a progressive government, but it's a government with, with strong, effective policies. In expenditures on education, health care, poverty reduction, they, they rose dramatically under Lula, and none of that's changed. The, the problem is that when you have such an unequal society, when you have so many poor people, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like the, the, the protests I mentioned last year that literally tore across the country, hundreds of thousands of people, the biggest protests since the 90s, and maybe even earlier, the immediate catalyst was a rise in, in, in bus fare and, and subway fares. Mm-hmm. So imagine what it takes for the middle class to go to the streets because they're paying a few more dollars each way on, on the train every day. What it means is that even the middle class feel precarious in their situation. It means that when you're at the middle class, you feel like having a middle class lifestyle, but they're far from that. And so a lot of it is expectations. A lot of it is that so much needed to be done that no matter what Lula was able to do, and it was quite significant, it's still not enough. You know, just one last example. Brazil mm-hmm. is one of the most unequal countries in the world. It's under Lula. Its inequality went down significantly, but it's still one of the most unequal countries in the world. Now, can the middle class in Brazil afford to go to any of these World Cup matches? Some of them do. It's hard to say. You know, they do want to keep the stadiums full. It's not really an issue of being able to go to the games or not. And and actually, to Brazil's credit, they tried to bring the games to very remote areas to make that more feasible. Mm. It's the symbolism of it all. It's what the money was spent on, the waste or the alleged waste. And where's the bang for the buck? What does Brazil get from spending all of these billions of dollars on stadiums, either in the short term or in the long term after the World Cup's long gone? Our guest is Professor Philip Oxhorn, Professor of Political Science at McGill University. We're so glad he's talking to us this evening. Professor, what do you think will be the long-term political ramifications of having the World Cup in Brazil? Does the government benefit from it at the end of the day, or are they going to get hurt when Brazilians wake up and they find some of the same problems and some of the same corruption that they were protesting before it happened? Well, honestly, I, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. If Brazil's team doesn't do very well, it will be a disaster politically as well as economically. But assuming Brazil does well and the odds are it will even win the World Cup, the, the political implications are, are not going to be very great. And, and the reason for that is that people forget about the Olympics. Or, excuse me, because the Olympics are going to take place in two years. They're, they're going to forget about this. If the problems are, are there afterwards, they're going to be protesting and complaining about the poverty and inequality, not, be, not the fact that billions were spent on stadiums. You know, it's a blip on the political radar. South Africa was much, much worse. Russia is just kind of a mess in a lot of different ways. And all of the protests, all of the criticisms are about the issues, not about whether or not stadiums were built. So it's going to blow over. So you figure that uh, the crowds that we see at these different matches, and, and again, you know, I love football, so I yeah. watch it, you know, a lot. 
Uh, and and uh, you figure that folks are relatively happy, uh, and uh, this World Cup is going to move forward without any overt protest till its conclusion. Probably, uh, you know. For example, there was fear of a subway strike. Well, that was resolved before things went very far. I don't think we're going to see much more than periodic, significant but small-scale kinds of protests until the end. Of course, you know, again, if Brazil is eliminated very early on, then it's anybody's guess what's going to happen. But even then, it's unlikely that we'll see widespread mobilization like we saw even a year ago. And the reason for that is that people are all caught up in the excitement, the nationalism rallying around the flag. Mm-hmm. And, and no one wants to make the country look bad by doing these kinds of things. I mean, it was much worse in South Africa, but even there it wasn't as bad as people expected. Brazil is not going to have the same problems. It's, that's what's so kind of paradoxical about this. In the immediate instance, yeah, people are upset. So the, most Brazilians don't want the World Cup to be there now, even though they probably wanted it there when the, Brazil won it. When it's all over and done, a lot of people will probably say, yeah, we're, we're glad, or they won't care. Professor Oxhorn, uh, I, I wonder if you could step back from this for a moment and, and talk about uh, government creation of, of sporting venues and that sort of thing, which transcends, obviously, the World Cup in Brazil. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it happens here. Uh, where people uh, get upset about the notion that owners who have a whole lot of money in some cases yeah. ask for government largesse to get stadiums built and they threaten to move if they won't, you know, if they don't get mm-hmm. their way. Uh, is that the, still the wave of the future or is it is, is it simply something that people have gotten used to at this point? Well, you know, it depends on the country. So if you recall, the, the Atlanta Olympics were funded a lot by private investment, much less government subsidy. Yes. So then if it comes to New York and there's talk of that for the future Olympics, it'll probably be a mix. A lot will depend on who's mayor, obviously. But, but there, there will be likely more private investment in any games in, in the future in the U.S. than there would be in Europe and certainly in a Latin American or African context, in part because the private markets don't have the capacity for that. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it's going to happen. I mean, look at the, the boost that London felt it got when it hosted the Olympics. So there's a lot that's attractive, and and so when it comes, you know, when push comes to shove, there'll always be the expectation that this is a public good, that this is good for the country, that it's good because it shows the country at its best. There's the tourism, there's the future economic relations. Whether or not that pans out in the future, really, no one knows, and no one cares in the in the long term. They're only thinking about the immediate advantage or opportunity to to, to wave the flag in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So if it's in the U.S., if it's in Europe, again, you know, we'll see fantastic opening games and, and opening ceremonies. And that, that's where people see the, the, the big bang for the, for the buck, beyond a doubt. What, what it's really worth, it's anybody's guess. Do you want, have you watched the World Cup as, as it's unfolded? Not, not, not as much as, as, as other people in my family, but oh yeah, yeah, for sure. My wife's Chilean, and so she was very happy that Chile beat Spain today. <laughs> Spain is out of it. It's, it's I know. Can you believe it? The, uh, yeah. the colony beat the colonizer. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there's some uh, poetic justice in that, no? <laughs> I think so. I really do. I really do. Professor Philip Oxhorn, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. We appreciate your time. Anytime. You Good talking it. with you. All right. Good night. Good Bye-bye. Night. Professor Philip Oxhorn, professor of political science at McGill University. Now, Jason, you know, I could go on and talk about the actual games. 
<laughs> but I'm not doing that. I'm not a sports commentator. I could comment on, on, on you know, I, I have a longstanding love affair with foot, what the rest of the world calls football, what we call soccer here. And, uh, but the pro- problem I have is I can't really, like, root for one team. I love the Brazilians, but I know their flaw is always the defensive back line. I love certain other teams. And, and this kid, Ochoa, from Mexico, who stopped, like, six shots uh, uh, six shots on goal yesterday, including one from Neymar, I swore was going in. Uh, I mean, that that's priceless stuff. And I also follow football during the English Premier League season. I happen to be a rabid fan of the Arsenal Football Club from North London. My loving wife, who I think is listening to this broadcast, is an aficionado of Tottenham Hotspur, the other North London team. So twice a year, we don't speak. Anyway, it's 19 minutes before the hour. You know, this, this hour is going by kind of fast. But we still have some other things to tell you about, some other things to share with you. And we're going to open up our telephones at 87, I'm sorry, 888-874-4888. And you, by the way, don't have to talk about anything that we've talked about to this point. Uh, whatever may be on your mind, please share it. You know, I, I got no problems with listening to you and what your concerns may be and uh, sharing my opinion with you and you sharing your opinion with the rest of the ether out here. Because, you know, this is a an Internet-based radio program, which means it goes everywhere. Everywhere people have computers, they can access it. And speaking of which, computers, the Internet, etc., Two lawmakers, uh, Leahy of Vermont and Matsui of California, have introduced legislation in both the Senate and the House to ban deals where web content companies can pay ISPs to deliver their traffic faster and more reliably. In other words, you can't stiff either small business or the ordinary consumer. Now, this is generally considered to be net neutrality. That's what they call it. I prefer to call it the Internet as we now know it. Um, Big names in the tech industry, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, LinkedIn, Netflix, Facebook, Twitter, Yahoo, all want the FCC who regulate radio and television and cable and God knows what else. They want the FCC to end their net neutrality plan. Their rules, this net neutrality thing they're they're promoting, contains a provision that allows businesses to pay ISPs, Internet service providers, for faster content delivery. Now, three years ago, the FCC passed net neutrality rules that were designed to keep the Internet free and prevent service providers from blocking each other's business. But January of this year, a lawsuit by Verizon resulted in a ruling that US tele- that the U.S. telecoms regulator could not force ISP, ISPs, that is, to treat all traffic equally. Why not? Why cannot all Internet traffic be created equal? Now, 
there are pitfalls with this. You know, I mean, there are people who engage in outright tomfoolery and quackery on the Internet. And, and by the way, some of it illegal. But I like the notion of a level playing field. I like the notion of taking ideas from people who are really, really smart and ideas from say on same subjects from people who may not be so smart and putting them together and comparing and contrasting for myself and processing the information for myself. Now, these new rules, by the way, which the FCC came up with, rather than try and appeal the decision that came down in January on that Verizon lawsuit, their rules are up for comment until September 10th over whether these pay-for-priority deals should be banned. Uh, I don't know if this... Uh, as a matter of fact, my guess is they're not going to pass this. I mean, I, I hate to say it because I think they should, but I think it's got no shot. Somebody's going to go to court. One of, one of the big telecoms or some other gigantic amorphous, you know, people that run our lives organization. Yeah, it, it's not like some of these companies. Is it okay if I mention names, Jason? <laughs> it's not like Verizon doesn't get enough out of people. You know, they're bundling files. You got your telephone from Verizon. You got this from Verizon. You got that. Verizon controls your life as it is. Now you want everything? Come on. Come on. Now, we're going to move on and talk about a bit of a pet peeve of mine. Teacher tenure. You know, uh, there was a ruling in California. Uh that said subjecting students to bad teachers violates students' fundamental right to a quality education. And I agree with that 100%. 100%. No student should be subjected to an education from bad teachers. The problem is that a lot of these people who run around talking, oh, we got to get rid of tenure. Oh, we're just When the unions talk about tenure, they're just supporting bad teachers. What they never say is how many bad teachers they're talking about. What is it, like 5%, 10%, 15%, half? They don't tell you. They really don't. And at the same time, they slap teachers in the face, good teachers in the face, with this kind of nonsense. And they don't think through the unintended consequences of trying to, and I'm going to say this, and maybe not everybody agrees with it, the unintended consequence of trying to privatize public education. That's right, privatize public education, because that's the end game. Why, you might ask? Because education has been, is now, and will always be Money, about finance. There is so much money in education, in terms of textbooks, in terms of all of the components that go into educating our children. Ain't none of them free. 
None of them are free. I feel blessed, uh, you know, in having parents who valued education and who didn't allow anybody to undereducate or miseducate me, my brother, or my sister. But when you talk about bad teachers, you need to set a, a certain level of standards. And if the teachers don't measure up, they should sell insurance. But have a set of standards. And, you know, they go back and forth about evaluations and about whether the evaluations are fair and blah, 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 blah. I want to know from those who, you know, the tenure killers out here. Uh, how many bad teachers do you think you're going to get rid of by getting rid of tenure? And how many decent teachers will get blown out, that is, fired, because a principal doesn't like them or somebody in a school system doesn't like them? You know, New York is a gigantic school system. 1.1 million kids educated in this system. But there are systems around this country that have graduating class of 15, 20 kids. And if somebody doesn't like somebody, somebody could very, whether they're good or not, they could be out of a job. So who is going to be the arbiter of all this? New Jersey, which has, by the way, I believe, a very good crop of teachers. A really good crop of teachers in most school districts. And yet, you know, people looking around about, well, you know, maybe we need to start messing with tenure. They're already messing with pensions. They already in New York are telling teachers they don't even deserve a stinking raise. But, and that's the media that largely does that. And they're full of crap. Okay, let's be clear. Um, there's danger in this teacher tenure ruling. Very grave danger. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's nine minutes before the hour. We got a few minutes left, so we're, uh, I'm going to talk about something else. Because I got a lot to talk about. I, I run my mouth. I, my wife is like, "Shut up!" Watch it. Um, I'm old enough to remember when heroin was the scourge of the inner city, and I mean the scourge of the inner city, where whole communities were devastated. Young men in those communities, addicted, their lives cut short in many cases because of heroin. And then it was kind of like a lull in heroin consumption. But you know what? It's back. But now, it's not back in the inner city anymore. It's in the suburbs. All of a sudden, you're hearing about kids in northern New Jersey, Staten Island, Cincinnati, Burlington, Vermont, Knoxville, Tennessee. These are not the places where people used to shoot up. But yet, heroin is, is rearing its ugly head in these smaller communities. In New Jersey and on Staten Island, police have been given an antidote with which they can treat people who overdose. Wish they had that around back in the day, but they didn't. 
Think about that for a minute. Heroin. And by the way, uh, New York is trying to pass a bill with regard to tightening up some of the issues around heroin. Um, Capitol Hill and the White House concerned about what they now call a full-blown health crisis. Somehow, you know what? I, I, I don't like to do this. But there seems to me to be a slightly different level of concern about the heroin epidemic now that it's no longer exclusively the province of the inner city. It seems to me as though heroin is our problem now. Where back in the day, it was black people's problem. It was their problem. Now, they're going to have to come up with some kind of holistic approach to deal with this. Government studies estimate the number of heroin users in America about 330,000 and growing. Up 75% from five years ago and three times the number in 2003. And it's a regular usage, according to this article that I have in front of me. Not seen since the, since heroin's peak in the mid-1970s. And one of the things I, I, I wonder about disparate treatment here is whether or not they're going to start locking some of these suburban kids up like they locked up an awful lot of kids in the inner city back in the day. Uh, why do I think they may not do that? Am I just being cynical? Is it some, I, and, and by the way, I don't believe necessarily in locking people up just for the sake of locking people up. But I just I just have a feeling they're not going to quite they're going to see it as something that needs to be treated. As opposed to something that can get you arrested before we leave you, I mentioned that we were going to do a very brief segment called to the ridiculous. And ladies and gentlemen, after looking at stories about Nazi cab drivers, in New York, and a bunch of other stuff, I came to the conclusion that there is one, one ridiculous story that seemingly will never end. Although you never know. I'm talking, of course, about the Kardashians. The most ridiculous group of people I think I've ever seen. Now, they're very rich, which I guess excuses everything. But why the media in this town or any other town dotes on the Kardashians is utterly beyond me. Headline in the New York Post from just the other day. Kris Jenner, that would be Mama Kardashian, seething after Kanye refuses to sell wedding photos. <laughs> what? <laughs> the woman's upset because Kanye West wouldn't sell and wouldn't take offers totaling up to $11 million to publish photos of their wedding. $11 million. You know, for that, I get a sense Chris Jenner might you know, trip the man down a flight of stairs or something. But it's not just that. Every time you pick up a newspaper, you got Kim Kardashian's cleavage or her butt or her sister Chloe's latest boyfriend or the other one. Why? 
It's ridiculous. It is utterly and completely ridiculous. Now, there's hope, though, because apparently their show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians or whatever they call it, because I don't watch it, uh, their show's cratering. The numbers are cratering. Uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians is going down, at least when it comes to the ratings. Numbers for the kickoff of the second half of the show's ninth season. Nine seasons already? We're down following last week's new episode. Second half of the ninth season debuted on June 8th with an episode called Let It Go. Uh, it didn't channel the popularity of the blockbuster Frozen with only 1.1 million viewers in the 18 to 49 demographic. Uh, another one? Slightly more than 2 million viewers. They had 4.1 million viewers when she got married, Kim did, to Chris Humphreys back in 2009. Is this part of a trend? One can only hope. And then the question is, when will the media wake the heck up and stop asking or stop acting as though every shot of a Kardashian's woman's cleavage is newsworthy? Please? Please? Could you? Could you? They probably won't. They probably won't. But what the heck? I said it. They're ridiculous. My thanks again to Gary Null. My thanks again to Jason. My thanks again to Casey for letting me be here and doing this. Because I feel good this evening. And I hope I shared something with you that maybe you didn't know before. And we're going to be back next week. God willing, in the creek don't rise. Live at 6 o'clock, right here on the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a wonderful evening and a wonderful week ahead.